I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Earlier this week, I spoke to Clay Chabot, a man who was wrongfully incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. Thanks to the incredible work of one nonprofit, Clay was finally able to see freedom after 22 years behind bars. The Innocence Project was able to file for post-conviction DNA testing that proved Clay's innocence, as well as catch the real perpetrator of the crime. The organization gave Clay the proper investigation testimony needed, giving him a plea deal that secured his release. Today, the Innocence Project has over 70 independent organizations that provide support and assistance to people across the globe. Although the Innocence Project has achieved over 200 victories to date, that number represents only a small fraction of the people who are seeking help. The nonprofit has received over 65,000 letters requesting assistance since 1993. Seth Miller is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida. Today, he joins me to explain how the organization operates, the challenges it faces, and how listeners can get involved. The Innocence Project of Florida is a small nonprofit justice organization based out of Tallahassee, and our primary mission is to find innocent people in Florida's prisons and uh, free them through uh, the use of new evidence of actual innocence, whether that be DNA evidence or any um, non-DNA evidence that, again, can demonstrate actual innocence. Um, and so we're really focused on those cases, um, you know, not where people were over-sentenced or um, you know, where they might have some you know, technicality that should have their conviction overturned, but rather where uh, the wrong person was sent to prison uh, for a crime they didn't commit. I'm so grateful to have you join us today because I think there are so many questions about the intricacies of your nonprofit and how it how you really work. So I have a ton of questions. So I'm just going to sort of launch into this list. So um, again, to confirm, so these are state, not federal cases. They are state within the state of Florida. Do you discern at the outset? Does death row take precedence over lifetime? Do you have a hierarchy as you receive these applications that you even look at first? Is there a, is there a hierarchy in that way? Yeah, there's definitely a hierarchy. It's actually interesting because uh, we don't work primarily on death penalty cases, largely because those individuals who are convicted and sentenced to death um, uh, uh, get lawyers. Um, they uh, have a right to counsel. Um, so because, you know, that's like 400 people, because all the other people who are in prison who may be wrongfully convicted don't have a right to counsel after they go to prison and lose their first appeal, we really want to focus our efforts on the, the broader population of wrongfully convicted people who, without our help, would not have uh, a lawyer to assist them. And do you receive applications from the inmates themselves solely or is part of your um, mining work and active outreach on your part, looking at cases from a proactive sense? We do reactive and proactive work. I mean, most of the work that happens here in terms of finding cases is people writing us, either it's uh, the individuals who are in prison writing us you know, handwritten letters, uh, explaining um, what happened in their case and starting an intake process that way. It could be their family members who are you know, outside of the prison who 
are contacting us through all the normal uh, digital and non-digital means. Uh, we have people calling our office, but we also take referrals uh, from other lawyers who you know, might have lost a trial and believe that uh, their client is uh, wrongfully convicted. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, as it happens, we find out about cases uh, because they're in the news or because they're in uh, legal cases that come out that are you know, published. And we proactively reach out to individuals um, that way where we think we might be able to help them. Additionally, if we were to identify a class of cases, like, for example, uh, if we win a case uh, and free someone where uh, a, junk, a certain junk science was used, we might go looking to collect those types of cases. We would actually proactively go out and look for those cases because they would have a, a, a greater chance of uh, having wrongful convictions in those cases if that junk science was used. And so, you know, the work is both people writing to us, but then also us also looking for the types of cases proactively that we know um, have a higher incidence of wrongful conviction. Can you share an example of junk science and define it for listeners? Sure. Um, there are a lot of, there were and are still a lot of forensic sciences that um, have been used over the years, particularly before DNA testing became uh, frequently used in cases that um, were extremely compelling and in many cases magical for juries uh, and led to many people being wrongfully convicted, but themselves didn't have a scientific foundation. The one that, I, that comes to mind that is most prominent is the use of bite marks. And so these are, you might have a, a victim who um, goes to the hospital if they're deceased, you know, this is at the, um, at the uh, medical examiner who's doing the autopsy and they see a mark on the body and the medical examiner believes it's a bite mark, and then they send it to uh, what's called a forensic odontologist, or in layman's terms, a forensic dentist, who then will you know, take a dentition from uh, one or more suspects and compare that. And you know, it has the you know, patina and aura of science because, and, and medicine because it's performed by a doctor, but the reality is it's just um, someone who is comparing something on a body to... Uh, someone's teeth, and oftentimes um, it's extremely biased in the way it occurs. And what we have found is that um, when we've they've they've done studies where they've sent uh, dentitions um, and what appears to be a bite mark on, um, to like a hundred forensic odontologists, and they got wildly inconsistent results about whether first and well first and foremost whether that dentition did or did not match the um the what was purported to be a bite mark and then whether the mark was even a bite mark in the first place and, and we've had the the fortunate ability to be able to represent a bunch of people who had bite marks in their cases where something was said to have been their bite that person's bite and it turns out later on we determined that it wasn't even a bite mark and we know it wasn't them because we exonerated them through dna which demonstrates that that um, scientific method that was used lacked any kind of validity. How many open cases or active cases, I should say, do you have right now? Uh, the Innocence Project of Florida has about 40 cases that are in some stage of um, intense on the ground investigation or already in court in litigation. But we have, I mean, it depends how you define active, but we have um, probably 250 or 300 cases that are in 
um, the the middle or latter stages of our screening process, and then about a thousand cases that are in the early stages of our screening process. So, um, you know, we we certainly have a number of a lot of people write us every year about a thousand new uh, inquiries a year. Um, and we're continuing to churn through those to look for those individuals who have indicators of innocence in their cases and then um, and then sort of put those aside and apply extra resources to then fully reinvestigating those cases to determine whether we can uh, develop uh, legal claims that uh, point towards wrongful conviction that we can bring in court. So am I understanding this correctly? Uh, you receive about a th- about a thousand applications per year. That's correct. New new applications, meaning not the same person writing twice, but you know new new applications. Of those, you pursue and screen about a third. It sounds like, and then of those, however, some get dropped off. But you 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 aggressively pursue about a third. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I would say that. I mean, here's the way I would describe it: is we get about a thousand new uh, applicants a year. Um, not people rewriting us, but people who are newly writing us. Um, of those, I would I would say about forty percent um, don't get screened out immediately because you know we do initial criteria screening, where about sixty percent get screened out immediately because they don't uh, meet our uh, criteria. They're federal cases, not Florida cases. They're um, death penalty cases, not general population cases. They um, are not claiming actual innocence. They're challenging their sentence. Um, they're they're saying, I did this act, but I have a legal justification for it. We don't work on any of those types of cases. So they get screened out initially. And then of the 40% that are left, we send them a screening questionnaire um, that uh, has them, it prompts them to give us pretty detailed information about their case. And when we get that back, we review that, and we're looking for you know, indicators of actual innocence. Does, does this case seem to have um, a problematic eyewitness identification? Um, is there an admission or confession that might have been the product of coercion? Uh, it, it, did they use a type of forensic uh, method uh, to connect this person to crime that we now know is problematic? is the case subject to post-conviction DNA testing? You know, these are the types of things that we want to be working on. And so if the answers to those questions are yes, then those get moved farther down the line for collection of documents, from historical documents from the case, and uh, they then get reviewed by staff and students to develop an invest- investigation plan to really put on-the-ground resources into to really developing the case from a factual standpoint such that we can determine whether there's claims that we can bring in court to represent that person. But all in all, from you know the big swath of letters that come in to the cases we litigate, we only take about 10 to 12 new cases a year. And so it's, it's really like a one to 2% of the cases make it all the way through the process. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Let's dive in a little bit. You mentioned DNA and bundling that with the concept of new evidence. So some courts and some police departments have policies where they won't test DNA twice. Can you explain for listeners the process of what how a case would be ripe for this DNA testing? Like when is something 
when are you unable to retest or unable to use? When are you challenged by a policy that leaves your hands tied, if at all? And how does this this new evidence, you know, what would that look like? What does that not look like? Yeah, so DNA testing um, is still an important part of, of the work to free the wrongfully convicted. Um, you know, one would think that uh, more than 30 years on from the beginning of use of DNA testing uh, in criminal investigations, you would think we wouldn't have any more DNA testing cases because any case that would lend itself to DNA testing, it would have been done on the front end. But we still have cases um, that come through the pipeline where DNA testing for one reason or another wasn't done. And we're still finding cases from the pre-DNA period where obviously it wasn't done because it wasn't in use. And so where DNA testing wasn't done and the testing would be on a type of evidence that's so connected to the crime or, or the perpetrator that if we were to test it and the results were favorable, it would tend to demonstrate that a client wasn't the person who committed the crime. We we can very, you know, very easily get DNA testing on those cases. Um, I, I do think that where there has been previous DNA testing done in the case, the questions that we're asking are what type of DNA testing was done and what are the nature of the results? And if if the type of DNA testing was a, a more primitive type of DNA testing that wasn't as sensitive or discriminating uh, and or the results were inconclusive, whereas they employed DNA testing, but you know they didn't get a result, if, if we can demonstrate that uh, more current methods of DNA testing are, um, you know, have advanced to a degree that we'd be able to get a result we weren't able to get one before, we can overcome uh, any sort of suggestion that we shouldn't get a second bite of the apple. Because the idea here is to answer the question of whether important biological material that supposedly comes from the perpetrator belongs to the person you convicted. So until you can get to a point where you can answer that question, in Florida, um, they, they, they give some lenity to be able to come back to the well, understanding that over time, science will continue to evolve and we might be able to have DNA testing methods in the future that we haven't thought of yet that can achieve a, a, a favorable result where previous DNA testing methods were unable to achieve a result. So the law contemplates the fact that there will be those evolutions and where there are, we need to give people the right to come back and repetition for DNA testing. That's heartening to hear. Would you say that sort of goes against common public perception about the criminal justice system in Florida? And would you perceive or interpret Florida's model then as a, a positive one that other states you wish would, would emulate? Are there other states that certainly don't have that contemplative perspective baked into the law that don't allow you coming back or make it hard to even attempt to break that open? Yeah, I mean, certainly Florida's law, um, I mean, and it's not perfect, but it, it, it works fairly well. And um, I, you know, I know and I've heard from my colleagues around the country that uh, a number of our uh, states in this in this nation have DNA testing laws that um, are not as I don't want to say generous, but uh, not as forward thinking as um, as Florida's. But I will say that when I think about public perception of how this all works, that I think people have a perception that if there is evidence to test, you should be able to test it, you know, whenever, as long as it's available until you get that answer, until you can get the result that says if, you know, whether or not this person is the person who committed the crime. And I, I think what confuses people is the idea that 
you know, any state, whether it be Florida or any state in the country, would put procedural barriers in front of people getting something so important like post-conviction DNA testing that can answer the ultimate question in any case where appropriate. And so I think people's confusion comes from, look, if we have this evidence to test, why would we ever not want to test it? And um, and that's what I hear consistently from people who don't understand why, um, you know, in some of our cases, prosecutors uh, fight against DNA testing, even where it's clearly uh, um, an entitlement under the law, um, they still fight against uh, some of my clients getting it. Yeah, let's div- dive into that for a second, because I think as well, not only is the public often surprised by the laws or policies in place that don't make it easy or readily available. Also, I think surprised by the lack of resources. And that's the saddest thing to me is when there's simply not enough money to pursue um, a test or a route. But also that notion that baked into the criminal justice system is a stubbornness and at times a hubris um, occupying certain positions where it's just a decision maker that keeps saying no or that keeps refusing to relent or entertain an idea of that they could have been wrong. What is your biggest challenge from soup to nuts as you go through that that process? And is it the human factor? Is the biggest challenge to the Innocence Project actually not money and not resources and not the law, but the human factor of prosecutors refusing to even entertain the notion that they made a mistake or that somewhere along the line, a mistake was made that could be rectified? Yeah, I, I think the answer to your question is sort of multifaceted because it's it, it doesn't fall only on prosecutors. It falls on judges and falls on the system right. that is set up in Florida and in other states for reviewing cases like this and people availing themselves of um, opportunities for relief when they develop you know evidence that demonstrates they're wrongfully convicted and sort of you know and I teach this to my students who and who don't understand you know if you have evidence of actual innocence why can't you just go into court? And because the laws that have been set up have not been designed to remedy wrongful convictions, but rather they've been designed to preserve convictions. Um, And it's all centered on this concept of finality, the idea that once you're convicted um, either by a jury or by a plea, and then you've exhausted your appeals, um, you know, the, the litigation has to stop at some point. And it, it, it really is centered on this idea that, I, I think an elevation of the decision making at the earliest part of the process and uh, subordinating or ignoring this idea that evidence can be developed in the future that can transform our understanding of the case and take a case that um, a good, you know, a good faith effort by a jury to convict someone, um, take it from that to a miscarriage of justice. And the, the law is not really set up in, in a way that uh, to take stock of that. And, so when you have prosecutors and judges who are operating in that space, they are making use of um, the procedural barriers that have been erected by courts and by, you know, you know, either through rules, but then also through subsequent interpretations of those rules through cases. Um, they are making use of those procedural barriers to prevent this evidence from having its day in court in many instances, saying things like, well, yeah, whatever this evidence is, even if we believe it and it proves innocence, you didn't bring it at the right time. You should have brought it earlier. And I think a lot of people, that is confusing to them because most people, if you ask them, particularly if it was their child, they would say, well, if the court 
and the prosecutors have evidence of innocence and you're, you know, and you're not going to even listen to it because you're saying that you should have brought it five or 10 years earlier. Well, that doesn't make sense. If you have the evidence of innocence, isn't there an imperative to act on it? And so I think um, that is one of the biggest hurdles. And, you know, when we're reviewing cases, we sometimes reject cases where we think that we might, where the, the person looks like they could be wrongfully convicted, but their case is so procedurally, um, you know, it's it's barred, right? It's it's so um, procedurally complicated that it would be such, it's be a, like a reclamation project from a procedural standpoint where we're not able to get it to a place in order to get a, a judge to look at the facts and look at the merits because it will just simply be denied straight away. And, and so we might reject that case because we're not going to go through the effort of filing something just to be denied because there's opportunity costs to doing that that take us away from someone else's case who may be more viable, um, who, who is also innocent. So, And those are the tragedies. Those are the cases where you have to tell a parent or someone in prison that, yeah, we believe you, but we don't have a legal remedy for you. And, and that's a function of a, uh, a system that doesn't work as it should. Can we talk about resources? Can you explain for listeners, you know, for every dollar, where does that apportionment go? You have a staff. If someone were to donate, where does the bulk of that money go? What's the most expensive part of running the Innocence Project, et cetera? I would say, you know, a lot of people, when they think about nonprofits, they're like, oh, how much of your work goes into service? How much of the money goes into service and how much goes into administration? I think different organizations have a different concept of what it means, uh, like what staff is. And in our project, um, 90% of our staff is programmatic staff. There are people who are getting paid a very modest salary to do the work of freeing wrongfully convicted people and helping them rebuild their lives after they get out of prison. That's lawyer, that's intake people, that's lawyers, that's investigators, that's social workers um, who are you know, working to provide direct services to people who are wrongfully convicted before and after they're freed. And so um, I think when people donate to the Innocence Project of Florida, they can be assured that virtually all of their donation goes into that programmatic work which is the reason that they're attracted to an organization like ours. And so um, in terms of the the biggest expenses, we spend a lot of money um, in the representation of our clients on hiring experts and, and, and doing forensic reanalysis in cases. We have to travel, Florida's a big state, and we have to travel all around the state to see our clients in prisons and go represent them um, in courts to pay for uh, depositions and and other types of investigation that has to go on are when we have you know witnesses to see that are vital for us to understand a case or to bring those people to bear in in, in hearings uh, so the court can have their testimony those witnesses are wherever they are sometimes they're in florida but sometimes they're all around the country even outside the country and we have to go you know spend resources to not only find them but then go meet with them in order to learn what they know about the case and to the extent that it's exculpatory, bring it to bear in the case. And so um, something like 85%, 90% of our um, resources we bring into the organization are put directly into the programmatic work that's done by the people that work here to find innocent people, free them and help them rebuild their lives. Are you surprised by or impressed by 
the amount of people who have control over costs if they reduce them for you. And I'm, and the, and surprised by and impressed by could go either way. You know, are people like, nope, this is my fee no matter what, or yes, it's, it's, this is a nonprofit. I'm committed to helping this cause and therefore I will waive this fee to the extent that I can. Does that happen a lot for you? Or do you find that it's business as usual? I mean, when you're talking about, um, you know, experts and they come in all forms, they can be scientists, they can be doctors, they can be social scientists. Um, you know, certainly people deserve to be paid for the hard work they do, um, just like anyone else. But what we find is that in many of our cases, uh, when certain aspects of the re- uh, of them are reviewed by the appropriate expert, um, that what they find is that there were missteps by, you know, doctors, scientists, law enforcement, um, you know, early on in the case. And a lot of these experts um, that might charge 250 or $300 or $400 an hour um, to consult in another type of legal case um, find that they have, uh, you know, ethical and moral responsibility to use their expertise to right what was wrong and to not have, not, and this isn't always the case, but not have the expense of hiring an expert be a burden um, or a barrier to get, you know, getting to the truth in a case of wrongful conviction. So oftentimes we do have experts, scientists, doctors who will offer their services fee free. And, you know, we pay for their expenses and things like that to come in for um, a hearing where it's necessary. And I mean, obviously, you know, we do all our work pro bono on behalf of our clients. Our staff gets paid modest salaries, but we don't charge our clients. We don't get paid more or less money if we win. Mm-hmm. And and so I think it's important for people to understand that one of the things that we always try to do, um, you know, whether it's with businesses that we're working with on a specific issue or an expert, or um, we're going to have an event somewhere to raise money, we're always looking for ways to save money. So uh, the money that people donate can go farther, and more of it can go um, to, to, you know, further in the programmatic work. And so to the extent people are willing to provide their services, you know, pro bono or low bono, um, we always ask that and we take advantage of it when the opportunity is available. Yeah. I recently had the honor of speaking with Clay Chabot, who was one of your numerous successful exoneration projects. And uh, through his story, he shared that rather than go to trial again, he chose freedom and retained the conviction for murder on a record. And I would love to have your thoughts on that as an attorney, as the director of Florida Innocence. What did that mean to you and, and a choice like that? And um, if you'd like to share. Yeah. So I, when I think about my job um, at the Innocence Project of Florida, you know, obviously I want to fully exonerate every single person I represent. But I think more broadly, my job is to make sure that someone who is innocent in prison, who is a victim of a miscarriage of justice, that they come home. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's the central thing. And so I understand and I and I my clients understand that we don't always have the authority or the power over how a case is resolved. And ultimately, the prosecutors who have the the discretion and the power to retry an a, a actually innocent person after their conviction has been overturned have the power to retain that conviction, even if it's wrongful, if they want. 
And oftentimes, you know, what my clients have to go through is they have to decide, you know, look, I just had this miraculous thing happen. I got my conviction and life sentence overturned because it was wrongful, but now they, they're hell bent on retrying me. And, and so I have to make the decision, you know, am I going to take control over the situation and get the hell out of it and, you know, get to the, 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 the process of getting on with my life or risk on principle going forward with a retrial and, 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 you know, risk going back to prison for life again, where all that work that was done to get me out of this situation, um, you, you know, will be for nothing. And so I don't ever begrudge people like Clay or my other clients who have had, who have been put in that position by prosecutors um, to ha- have to make what is really a, a choice between two really bad situations. And many of my clients have, have, when given that choice, have chose freedom because it's, you know, they never had a chance when they've been wrongfully convicted to control their situation. And for the first time, they've been given a choice and they've chosen to go home so they can be with their elderly parents and they can reconnect with their children who they were um, you know, disconnected from when their children were younger or whatever the case may be. And um, you know, it's a personal decision but and one that doesn't come lightly. But you know, someone like Clay or my other clients like Stephanie Spurgeon, Amanda Brumfield, these individuals are now living their lives and living them to the fullest, and they are not behind bars. And then, and that is prime of primary importance. And I'm proud of them and support them for making that decision. Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the incredible and tireless work that you and the Innocence Project undergo. Are there any last words or thoughts you'd like to share with listeners today? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we, you know, our organization, Innocence Project of Florida, has been around 20 years, and um, you know, it's always a time for reflection and also a time to think about what the next 20 years looks like. And we're in the beginning stages of a strategic growth as an organization that is going to, um, you know, double the capacity of the organization to help us, you know, get far and more people out of prison every year and, and have more resources to help them get back on their feet after they get out. And so it is a great time to, um, you know, invest in the justice work that Innocence Project of Florida is doing. And people can visit our website at floridainnocence.org if they want to learn more about it and um, join us uh, in the fight to free people from wrongful conviction. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.